Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I'm joined today by news editor Bradley Gerard. How are you doing? Very good, thanks, John. Good. And companies editor Ian Smith. How are you? Not too bad. Busy at the moment. Yeah, it's picking up, isn't it? The pre-Christmas results rush. Yeah. How many weeks of this uh, mini hell have we got? I think it's only a couple of weeks of mini hell, but uh, yeah, it's hellish enough. Yeah, did feel noticeably busy this week. We got out a little bit later than uh, than we have for the past few weeks, so uh, lots to talk about today. So uh, Emma's unfortunately not here to talk about the cover feature which she wrote, which uh, we've called Trumper Tantrum, uh, echoing the old taper tantrum that we had back in 2013. It's about the impact of uh, Trump's victory uh, on emerging markets, and and there has been a, a noticeable sell-off in emerging markets since since he won, given the rhetoric that's coming out of his camp. And that's after uh, emerging markets really recovering since the start of the year. Yeah, so what we're asking is basically, can it continue? And is it going to be a universal effect? uh, Or are there certain countries, Mexico and China, obviously most noticeably, that that will suffer disproportionately? So pick up magazines, have a read of that. Okay, so let's, uh, I've got lots of results to talk about, as you alluded to, Ian. Little snippets of the news section that, uh, that are worth discussing. Bradley, where do we start? Absolutely. I think a good place to start, actually, is um, on the movement of Ocado's shares yesterday. Um, One of my favourites. Exactly. Yeah, we've talked about this before a few times, I think. They fell quite heavily yesterday. And the reason being is that um, the the sort of tie-up between Morrison's and Amazon sort of um, it began, it started. It, it was already known about. This wasn't sort of like a surprise announcement. I guess it just shows investors kind of, a, kind of so I guess, uncertainty about where Ocado goes from here because one of Ocado's main, well, collaborators, as you, if you can call it that, is Morrison's. So now Morrison's is sort of delivering its shopping through Ocado and Amazon. And obviously just the, the general might of Amazon seems to be leading to people to think okay well can Ocado keep its deal with Morrison's going they did relatively recently renew it so it's not like it's going to fall off a cliff but well, presumably on a non-exclusive basis then well yeah exactly that's the other thing <laughs> and also <laughs> Ocado, deal. every result Ocado says that more tie-ups with other supermarkets are in the offing which they've been we, saying for years yeah, and, and literally one Morrison's has ever materialised beyond the original Waitrose deal exactly so I don't know, the, the 7% fall in the shares yesterday was I just struck me as interesting and perhaps is um, something that if anyone's in those shares, they should maybe take note of. I mean, whether they want to sort of feel as negative is up to them, but it suggests that the market is a bit sort of pessimistic about Ocado's fortunes, given Amazon's now on the scene. It's one of the most... A shorted shares, isn't it? On the yeah, London. it was. At the time of their results, of, uh, probably a few weeks ago now, yeah, we looked on the, the, the FCA actually publishes daily data and yes, Ocado was, I think, either the most or second most shorted stock by fund managers. So. And we did report on it when they renegotiated the terms of the deal between Morrison's and Ocado, didn't we? And you could see then the writing was on the wall and that the power had shifted in the relationship. It was no longer, you know, Ocado helping Morrison's out to find out about the world of online food sales. And it was more about, okay, well, now there's other players, a massive player coming into the market and Morrison's has a lot more kind of power in terms of who it gives its products to. Exactly. And arguably, Morrison's not the most powerful supermarket either. It's undergoing a very sort of substantial turnaround under new management, which is working well. It does seem to be, yeah. But it's not sort of like on the scale of a Tesco or a Sainsbury's, which is likely to have that sort of, you would assume it to have that might in a negotiation. It's not of that ilk, really. So the fact that Ocado has, as Ian alluded to, has kind of seemed to kind of soften a little bit on its agreement with Morrison's last time around is perhaps indicative of, of 
something. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to have a look at what Ocado's numbers would look like if you stripped the Morrison deal out of them, because as far as I remember, until they struck that deal, they were always struggling to, to, to turn a profit. Yeah, and, and it's a very capital-intensive business, isn't it? In Absolutely. And um, I'm presuming they've invested very heavily in uh, expanding their, their infrastructure so that they can support deals like the Morrison's one. And if, if they're moving away, they're left with a huge amount of potentially redundant infrastructure. This is something that Mark Robinson wrote a taking stock column about um, a couple of months ago. The problem of being a, kind of a first mover into this kind of capital intensive market is that you can kind of have a lot of the experience that helps other players, but then, yeah, getting a return on that original investment is not quite as straightforward. Yeah, and I mean, the, you know, we know the kind of bigger supermarkets, uh, Tesco in particular, they have slightly different models. Uh, Tesco will pick from what it calls dark stores, Sainsbury's picked from in store. So they're kind of milking the base that they already have already, essentially capital invested. As well with Ocado, I know as as a sometime customer that they've invested fairly heavily in promotional deals to actually get market share as well uh, in terms of, you know, free deliveries and those kind of things. So, you know, with all that discounting and those offers, that's something that, you know, is going to be challenging for them in terms of getting profitability out of what they already have. Yeah, I did see a couple of other bits of news from the supermarket industry this week. I think somebody said that uh, they believe that Audi and Lidl's growth has started to moderate, that uh, they're no longer the biggest threat that they see out there. What you read, the sentiment of it is absolutely correct, that the pace of growth, I think, is slowing a bit. But I think some of the headlines were perhaps a little bit aggressive. That's in, the only bit I read, Bradley. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think they're perhaps a bit <laughs> aggressive in dis- dismissing the uh, the onslaught and um, the growth that they still are maintaining. Uh, new store about to open in my town. Can't exactly. wait. Exactly. I mean, they they are rapidly gaining market shares from a from a low base. It is from a low base. You know, they're, they're nowhere near the market share of the big um, sort of incumbent players in the UK. But, but, but um, between Audi and Lidl, they've kind of hit sort of that ten to twelve percent yeah, mark, which is right. about the same scale as say a Morrison or a... yeah. I think it's uh, yeah combined is around the Morrison's marginally lower figure. I think from memory. So they are quite big. They so, are, you know, yeah. Yeah, the law of bigger numbers starts to kick in. It, it becomes harder for them to grow as quickly as they so used you, to. Of course, so you would expect the pace of their growth to slow, which I think is what's happening. But I, I, I don't think that's sort of necessarily um, a suggestion that they should be sort of, uh, you know, that people shouldn't worry about them anymore in terms right. of the market share of the big supermarkets. Indeed. And I'm pretty sure I read Sainsbury saying that the one it worries about probably more than anyone is, is, is Amazon. Really? Yes. Yes. And some some of the research that I've seen in terms of the online food sales, people um, can be very loyal to where they did their last shop. And if you just think about it, it makes sense in terms of, yeah, you've already got your preloaded with whatever site you use. You've got your kind of preloaded preferences in terms of your shop, and it's just very easy to do. So in terms of that gaining that uh, early market share is quite important. And yeah, I think that the entrance of Amazon is something you can't really understate in terms of the impact. Although, you know, online being just still you know, a fairly small proportion of the market, it is growing. Yeah, I must admit, I absolutely hate the idea of Amazon and what it's done to say, well, we talked about this before, but you know, the HMVs and the Waterstones of the world, I still bloody use them. It's so convenient. You know, and, and actually, I think, I think people are less loyal in their shopping preferences these days. I think convenience comes into things a great deal, you know, and, and actually on my drive home, I will drive past a little rather than having to drive an extra couple of minutes to go to Tesco. And you know what? I'll do it because it's there. The details of this deal, I believe that Amazon Prime customers are getting same day delivery, but then if they want it within a certain time period, they pay in a surcharge. Yeah, so they can pay um, a £7 fee for goods in an hour, basically, um, but then two hour order slots, which obviously be 
probably later that day or the next day whether they are free and that, that's quite that's quite bold because a lot of the other supermarkets you know the one that i use you have to sort of pay for a delivery slot which you know seems fair they're delivering some mm. goods to you but um yeah this is this is the amazon morrison tie-up i can have free free two-hour slots so maybe my curry sauce granules will arrive by drone after all <laughs> <laughs> right enough supermarkets what else we've got bradley a couple of the stats, I suppose, are interesting. Um, in the numbers, we've got a 10%, which is the amount that a house builder Barrett Developments um, has knocked off um, some of the prices of its high-end London properties. I think that's kind of an interesting bit of their results from yesterday because it just potentially shows that, you know, things in property, while they've not been sort of decimated and there's not a huge amount of fear necessarily post-referendum, the huge rise in, in prime property in London is, you know, sort of coming to... A bit of a slowdown, I guess, kind of like the like the um, challenger supermarkets, if you will. It's probably silly to write off growth in London property just yet, but it can't keep going on the pace it has done. And um, I think that that sort of figure just jumped out as particularly interesting. Yeah, this could have something to do with the fact that London homes cost substantially more than uh, homes elsewhere, especially the, the high end ones. Especially yeah. the high end ones. There's a lot more stamp duty incurred upon them as well. Um, we've got an autumn statement coming up soon, and uh, next week, a lot, of co- a lot of speculation about what that may bring in terms of, of property will these stamp duty reforms be undone because because arguably they haven't really done anything except you know dent transaction volumes and you know a 10 percent tax on on nothing is is, is worse than a three percent tax on something as far as i'm concerned yeah i look at i suppose looking at it on a yeah in terms of how it's affected the tax taken that year but i suppose you have to look going forward as well but yeah so we're gonna I, get we're gonna get all uh tax no, philosophy no, here no, you know, well, <laughs> But what's also interesting, actually, in terms of that policy side of things, is that the government now giving to the Bank of England some extra powers to regulate buy-to-let property. Mm-hmm. So they are clearly are concerned. In terms of the mortgage market? In terms of the mortgage market. So okay. they clearly are concerned about some of the heat in some of the areas of the, the property market. Just picking up on Bradley's point, I was looking at British Land's uh, results just earlier, um, and they are saying that when it comes to kind of the London residential market, yeah, the high end, th- there has been this sort that Bradley's talked about but then also because you've had the uh, fall in the pound relative to other currencies that has kind of kept some demand there from overseas buyers um, and actually um, in the kind of medium range that there's still a fair amount of strength so yeah prime London had been very pricey before so it's very interesting yeah running into the autumn statement whether we see anything else from the government trying to uh, take some of the heat out of the property market yeah I mean the buy to let thing is interesting we ran a, a seminar quite recently on build to rent, in fact. So you know, a lot of the private rented sector, and that is a, is a growing sector. I mean, home ownership levels are, are falling. Unsurprisingly, much more difficult to buy a house, especially if you're a younger buyer, um, you know, having to raise a very large deposit. Um, so lots more people going into rent. A lot of that rental market is serviced by essentially private landlords, um, some of them who own multiple properties, but many of whom owns, own just one or two. And actually, this new thing is coming along, build to rent, where institutions get involved and build very large developments, like, for example, the Olympic Park is uh, is such a development, where, where the institutions essentially own the property uh, and, and use it as an income stream. And I think pension funds are very interested in this model as well. Yeah, definitely. And it gives us a, a rental market that is more like some of our European neighbours, um, which would be no bad thing for tenants in terms of standards and it's something that as you say institutional investors such as pension funds have been looking to get into for a while because it's like a bond proxy yes exactly um so it makes sense for them if they can handle the risks and what's really interesting with jonas's piece is he which is in this week's magazine in fact so we've we've written up the 
the, essentially the seminar, the, the principles behind it in this week's magazine. And yeah, he talks about some of the, as you mentioned, the Olympic Park and some of the other deals and also the asset managers that are involved in these deals. And it's definitely a burgeoning market. Um, and it, it makes perfect sense. I think landlords had had it easy for a few decades in terms of the policy towards them and the kind of restrictions that would be put, have been put on them. And what we've seen recently is the government toughening up slightly, both in terms of the tax um, but also in terms of the, what the, what's required of a landlord. Mm. I mean, it, yeah, it's interesting. I pulled pull some stats together myself for that for that seminar. And uh, one uh, slide I, I put together showed the proportion of uh, home ownership against the proportion of, of houses that were owned by buy-to-let landlords in, in particular regions of the country. And London is, is phenomenal. I mean, there are more buy-to-let landlords than homeowners in London. So it's not surprising that, you know, perhaps the heat needs to be taken out of it somewhat. And I guess as well, if, if institutions may be aspiring a, a, an advantage here, because if, if the pressure is being laden more heavily on smaller buy-to-let operators, then maybe, you know, I know largely the institutions are building their own sites, but maybe it will turn into them buying some sites of the smaller buy-to-let operators who can't kind of manage under the sort of more cumbersome regulations. Maybe, maybe. I think, yeah, one of the uh, points that was suggested was that that actually the the current rental stock that's owned by the buy to let sector is is very very difficult to manage because it's often very disparate. You know, a house here and a house there. So actually, the whole the whole idea is that you you know you build these things in close proximity to one another, like on the Olympic Park, for example, and it's much easier to manage as a whole, much easier for the institution or a professional running it on their behalf, like Watkin Jones, for example, to manage. And exactly, and if we're going to f- meet the need the housing need that we have in this country especially in london we're going to have to go up and we're going to have to build um, blocks of flats that people can rent like you say to meet the, the affordability and so we're going to need some institutional money to come in there to to build these things yep but i know we've updated inland homes which is the the aim listed house builder which we've liked for quite some time shares are a bit down on our uh, our tip price but we've, we've liked this one for a long time so long long term it's up on our, our original buy tip but you know it looks it looks all right you know people are still buying homes particularly in the regions and uh, and there is still lots of uh, of, of good uh, opportunity out there for the house building sector yeah and they also have this essex i know it's in there quite a bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they also have this joint venture in essex and uh, with a contractor to develop 43 new homes so there is some positive news flow more recently okay what else have you got bradley well, I guess seeing as we've mentioned the awesome statement, I'll jump to that news story briefly. Uh, quite a few comments from people I've spoken to and sort of in my inbox as well, sort of hoping that Chancellor Philip Hammond won't sort of over tinker with pensions. Pensions are how f- can you over tinker with pensions? <laughs> Haven't they been tinkered enough with already? Well, you could have they've been tinkered with so much that a little bit more tinkering is going to do nothing. <laughs> we, we don't even have a pensions minister anymore. No. We have well, an no. under secretary for pensions. I thought that was going to be the end of the tinkering. Well, yeah, this is this is what people are hoping. They're hoping that they'll be at least left alone for now, and maybe in the future made less complicated. And some of the um, sort of tightening of ben- or the benefits of pensions sort of reduced because as times in times past, um, you know, so the annual allowances and lifetime allowances have been reduced. Yeah, um, which yeah, obviously ba- has been quite substantially as yeah, well substantially. to the point where you're you're getting to the point where. The, the amount of money you can put into a pension is potentially not going to be enough to provide you with a decent income in retirement. Exactly, which is obviously a big worry, considering that the UK is not the best pension-saving country in the world either. Like the, 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 the thought of pensions is not massively in a large part of the workers' psyche, which is partly why auto-enrolment has come along and mostly fixed that, I suppose, to yeah. a degree. Apparently, I talked to figures today, there's about 4.5 million people now 
now saving for pensions who perhaps weren't before thanks to auto roll that's a exactly. decent figure still still quite small De- decent, figures, yeah. decent figures but pathetic amounts currently being saved yeah. 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 when they well, go up to the statutory minimum it's still be reasonably pathetic but still it's a it's big something start. isn't it yeah, yeah. i mean it's put it it's putting into people's minds the idea that you do need to save for retirement that you need to provide something which of is your the, own which is the opposite of what bradley as bradley has said has ha- has happened in previous uh uh, autumn statements and budgets that the tax relief keeps getting cut. I mean, it's just seen by politicians as you know an easy grab. No one's going to really complain because the annual allowance, the lifetime allowance, favours wealthier investors. So it's kind of a blameless thing. Uh, it's, but it's classic political short-termism. It takes away some of the incentives to save um, and doesn't really replace them with anything else. And now they're talking. Well, you had the lifetime ISA. You had the lifetime ISA, but that has its own problems in terms of taking the money out early. Yeah, uh, and also I think wasn't there as well something about it's part uh, part of its rationale for being was that one could save for a house deposit, but then I think I when it, that was the help to buy ISA. I was able to buy. Sorry, I'm getting my ISA confused. <laughs> well, there's another one as well we've written about in this week's magazine, which is the innovative finance ISA. Too many ISAs. Maybe we should start that. Again. Maybe, maybe overcomplicating ISAs. I mean, yeah, it, it, that's an interesting point. What we've the se- finance wasn't confusing enough already for, for, for many people. Well, what you're seeing actually on that point is that pensions and ISAs have slowly become the same thing over time. So the way they've changed the tax treatment of pensions to make them less and less attractive, and the way and the accessibility of pensions in terms of now being able to get more tax uh, get more cash when you're 55 without um without being hit by a huge tax charge is moving them more towards an ISA and then things like the lifetime ISA has moved the ISA more towards pensions so you can see where the direction of travel uh, in policy is going but it doesn't um, make you feel greatly at ease about the retirement security when you think an annuity although on current guilt yields is not giving a great income at least it it's might a huge change soon it might change soon it's already starting to change and um, at least that's a secure income in retirement so what we're yet to see and this is why I think some people don't want further tinkering is we're really yet to see the longer term impacts of the reforms that were came into effect in april 2015 what in terms of how that might actually create a a healthy drawdown yeah whether there has been a healthy market whether people have cashed out we saw in the early data that maybe with the smaller retirement pots people were just going into cash but in terms of people that had a large enough pension pot to get some kind of secure if modest income whether that was the right decision for them to take that money out whether that money was then invested wisely there was some reports of people just taking money out and putting it in the bank a lot of people talking about going into the property market so a lot of people are saying before we see the effect of that we perhaps shouldn't make more fundamental changes and obviously with the secretary annuity market i think as we previously discussed that's something where the chancellor the new chancellor has stepped back from his predecessor Mm. what we have also seen this week is the fca has confirmed that uh, the exit fees on pension pots for people who are looking to take advantage of these new freedoms, uh, it's going to be capped at 1%. And I think previously, I mean, there were some ludicrous charges floating around here. Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, Huge amounts, 5%, it, 10%. Well, it was, it was a market cost, so I guess companies would charge, charge what they the thought was the market rate. And I guess when you get into a pension, it's such a, a potentially big decision anyway. You don't really think about the exit charges of it. So I guess it's a cost that a lot of people were not thinking of, and this is 
obviously why regulators and the government have moved to sort of prevent it being really a bit of a cash cow for pension companies really i mean yes there's some some administration involved in someone exiting a pension scheme absolutely but i think some of the rates that were being charged as you say were perhaps a bit more than was necessary yeah so so that's been written up in the uh personal finance section i'm sure they'll talk about that on their own podcast uh which they record tomorrow along with the innovative finance ice which i've just mentioned but interesting you know i think just go back to what you were saying in this is the kind of good development which could actually start to see the market function a little bit more healthily and, and, and actually we'll start to see see how it's really working. Yes, and uh, but I suppose the other side of it is for those companies that are going to have to review in terms of their book value, those policies, the people they currently have on the books and now that it's easier for them to leave, how does that impact on some of the value of the, some of those life insurance companies Ooh. as providers? Oh, there's many Unintended consequences. <laughs> the relationships are... Uh... Often difficult to predict. And, uh, <laughs> Complex as, as correlations. You and I have discussed this week in our editorials. Okay, right. That's enough about pensions. Should we talk about takeovers? Yes, let's. We've got a very interesting one this week. We've had some interest from our readers about. Yeah, it's um. We changed the headline, by the way, Bradley. Yeah, as you may notice, the headline did change, and it doesn't. I'm not actually a big fan of it, if I'm honest. But anyway, the first one was uh, was rather confusing because it is a bit of a confusing takeover. It is. Anyway, this this regardless of the, the headline basically what's happened is um mp evans which is a palm oil producer has been approached by a company um which is known as klk they initially made a bid for mp evans at the back of october and that was rejected by mp evans and they've klk has come back with a second bid offer which again mp evans's management has rejected um, now this is where it gets confusing this is where it gets confusing but i'll try and make it simple right so after the first bid MP Evans quite quickly managed to release a list of investors that um, supported the board's view that the bid should be rejected. Mm-hmm. That was a total of about 55% of the shares in issue. But subsequent to the second bid, the percentage effectively of investors who support the board's rejection of the bid has fallen to 41 So, So... Inching closer to a takeover, <laughs> well, as the headline so. says. <laughs> it's just, yeah... Um, so, yeah, the statement the second time around was issued more quickly. So there's a chance that Fidelity and JP Morgan, the two companies who were missing from the second list, may well appear on a later version of the list, but they weren't there immediately. So there's a suggestion potentially that the second offer from KLK has made some investors think, well, maybe this is something we could accept. And what's also interesting is that the, the clauses around the deal, so basically KLK cannot up this offer barring two events happening, one of those being a third-party bidder coming in or another bidder coming in. The other one is that MP Evans can ask for another another offer from KLK. Apparently, that's quite rare. I didn't know this. I thought it'd be relatively common. But apparently, that's quite rare. And so what one analyst I spoke to thought that could mean is that MP Evans could... Although this doesn't sound like what the management, the board would do, given their their tone. But what they could do is say, okay, yeah, we'll sell for X and maybe KLK will, will pay for that. One of the questions this raised for me is, why was the market's estimation of the value of this company so far away from the bidders and also the management's estimation of the value of the company? Yeah, there are a couple of answers to that. One is that the, the price of... Um, similar companies palm oil companies in asia that are listed in asia is is well above that of the ones in london and the way they kind of count the way a lot of the analysts calculate the the bid is working out at a price per hectare of palm oil 
and on their view, this offer is something like I think it's like twelve thousand dollars a hectare or something for memory, but the sort of global average is about fifteen thousand. So they're, they're sort of suggesting on a sort of a fundamental you know level how much how much the value of palm oil MP Evans can produce is. That's really it's interesting. Undervalued, though. but I suppose because those those other companies were already that information was publicly available. It's really interesting that MP Evans previously, I know we we had it on a buy, but it was you know the value being put on the company and its property assets was so much lower. I do, do you know what? I think, I mean, I used to cover these palm oil companies and there was a period when, when they were really in demand, you know, amongst UK investors. And I think, I think investors in the UK have been burnt several times by, you know, poor crop reports, uh, poor output, missing targets, you know, and, and perhaps the appetite here is just not what it is mm. in, uh, in, in the home markets in Malaysia and Indonesia for, the, for these assets. Perhaps, you know, the, just UK investors have fallen out of love with palm oil. Yeah, also another... And look at the price graph there. Well, yeah, I, mean, I was going to say that. I mean, if you, there, we have put a, um, a chart of the palm oil price the past five years and 2016 has seen a bit of a rally because um, production hasn't been so good because of weather um, conditions, which means the price has risen, but compared to five years ago, it's still way, way off. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting one. Um, but it does sound like a, there is value here. I mean, if, if we're talking, you know, comparative valuation. I think so. I mean, one, one other thing to come back to kind of Ian as well, maybe the, the rationale for the, the for KLK pitching its bid where it has done. Um, the shares are generally viewed as relatively illiquid. So uh, if, you're a, if you're a fund manager at an investment house and you've backed MP Evans and you've seen the share price, you know, rocket from 400-odd P to nearly 700 P, and that's below the actual offer price of 740 P, you're going to be thinking to yourself, well, I've made a lot of money on that position. Do you know what? I'll happily take that. Whereas there are some investors like family offices who are happy to see the shares fall back to where they were before and wait 20 years for them to come back. But fund managers asset asset management houses are unlikely to have that long-term of view. So a chance to get out could be part of the um, reason that maybe some institutional investors are, are being swayed. Oh, fascinating. Watch this space. Watch this space. Now, it is an interesting one. Um, like I said, we've got, I, I know we've got lots of readers who are interested, so we will keep you updated on the situation there. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I think Alex's piece is great this week in the new spotlight, by the way. Uh, yeah, it's good, isn't it? it? I think it's really good. Uh, looking ahead at some of the political risks that we face uh, in the new year. Actually, no, some of them are this year as well. We talked about the Italian referendum that no one understands. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not even half the people in Italy either. Half? I think that's being very generous. <laughs> I, um, no, I was praying about it. People were like, no, we don't. We haven't got a clue what it's about. Um, but we like Renzi. <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't got a clue what it's about. We don't like Renzi. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but it is seen as a big, big risk for Europe. And then we've got the, I don't, the presidential inauguration. Well, yeah. yeah I mean, is that a risk? It is a risk because we have a period between now, which is where... Donald Trump is appearing to be a bit more conciliatory than he was on the campaign trail. And January, when he comes into office and perhaps actually starts to say what he will actually do. Because it, it feels to me that someone who was so aggressive on the campaign trail and so apparently um, you know, calm once he's met the um, the incumbent president and sort of obviously talked about how difficult a job it is, I don't know, it strikes me that at least he's going to have to fall in the middle somewhere. Um, and who knows where. So it, it is a risk because we've seen markets sort of breathe a bit of a sigh of relief once um, Mr. Trump spoke, having won the election. And you have to kind of think to yourself, well, but that that's just, it's just more talk. Mm. So, you know, by inauguration, we might have a bit more clarity on who his team is. 
what they're planning on doing. So yeah. it is what a risk. What he's had for dinner for the last three months, I judging know. by the recent news stories. <laughs> I take it you saw that one. I did. This <laughs> is incredible stuff. I didn't even know that was, pol- was pro- protocol, as they call it, but uh, there you go. And then we've got the Dutch parliamentary elections, French presidential elections, German elections. Wow, what a year. What a year. What a year, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, this year's been quite exciting. But, well, it, uh, but um, we, uh, the markets needn't worry because um, the, the Front National in, in France are behind in the polls, and as we know, the polls are... The polls, yeah. <laughs> so that's done. I don't know why we're even talking about it. No, no, absolutely. Okay, should we, uh, should we touch quickly on uh, some of this week's uh, results because there are quite a few of them and uh, well we've got a bit of time left what have you what have you covered this week Bradley what's your, uh, what's your um, highlight of the week I guess it's definitely worth talking about EasyJet because um, this has been an interesting one it's it's had a tough fall to 2016 his EasyJet it's not had it easy um, and in these results which are full year results um, it's it had a £240 million hit to profits basically because of um, strikes, um, weather-induced cancellations and the negative effects of currency as well. EasyJet's the pretty much the only, not the only airline, but the majority of its rivals report in euros. Um, EasyJet reports in pounds. So the fact that the pound is now weaker against the euro where it does earn some of its revenue mm-hmm. has, has not been a good thing. Um uh, the the main interesting thing, I suppose, out out of the results that isn't sort of like an operational number, is that um, Carolyn McCall on the um, on the press call said that they are very very close to setting up a new um, operating company in Europe. So their HQ will remain in the UK, but they're obviously seeing Brexit as a potential risk. And while there are good noises, you said from the government in terms of that. They're hoping that you know um, the existing framework for planes from various countries around Europe to fly into one another and bet- within within borders will be maintained. There's no guarantee of that. So EasyJet's going to set up another um, operating license, effectively in a European country. They weren't able to say yet which country that will be, um, but yeah, it, it will basically it's effectively a hedge really on the Brexit negotiations because now, in a way, regardless of what happens. EasyJet will be able to operate flights between European, like EU countries, and within individual EU countries. Seems very sensible, very pragmatic. Yeah, and apparently it's not that I, I sort of asked if it was a common thing. He said, "Well, well Lufthansa's got fourteen of them, so it's not like a completely crazy thing to do." Apparently, it's not very expensive, relatively routine. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, it seems very sensible, and obviously for people like Ryanair potentially don't have to worry about this being based in Ireland. They're already in the EU, come what may, with Brexit. We've um, already seen the vote, in, which is an interesting point that you make in your sector focus this week. A drive a little bit of a wedge between Ryanair and EasyJet in terms of now their strategic focus. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, EasyJet was very clear that um, you know it, it is the number one sort of short-haul airline in the UK and it's certainly going to cement its position as that with pretty much half of its planned growth is going to be in the UK. You contrast that to Ryanair, whereby it curbed its um, second-half growth plans for the UK from 12% to 5% from memory, and Wizz Air has also been quite aggressive in cutting its uh, planned UK growth as well. Now, Wizz Air is very, uh, very strong with Eastern European. It uh, is, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's definitely an argument to say, well, it's probably completely correct to say, not just an argument, that the UK is not sort of necessarily the primary market for Wizz Air, but it is an important one. And the fact that it is curbing its 
growth plans for the UK is interesting, especially as you know as EasyJet is is definitely doubling down on on a domestic soil. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, as Ian alluded to, you've written text focus this week, which is uh, which is a much more detailed look at the the airline industry. Yeah, uh, cost control seems to be something that they're all worried about. Yeah, I mean, uh, arguably costs are always a, a worry, but they're particularly worried at the moment because what's what's largely kind of happening is we are having. Um, a downward spiral, really, in airfares, which is... But this is a, and this is overcapacity. Yeah, well, it's partly... you would. There's a worry, I suppose, there has been a worry, that with the pound falling, airfares will go up. Um, but actually, really, this isn't quite quite really happening because a lot of the airlines are taking this on the, on the chin. Um, so the point I'm going to make in the sector focus is that for investors in airlines, it's really important to look at how the revenue per seat is going and how the cost per seat excluding fuel is going. Because obviously fuel is very low. All the airlines are benefiting from low fuel costs and their hedging policies mean that's a a year or two out as well. But if their cost savings outside of fuel are not keeping up with any drop in revenue per seat, then that's a real problem. And Ryanair is widely regarded as the best sort of cost controller in Europe, if not the world. Mm, I've flown them. I know. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and it's aggressive on that front, whereas EasyJet has not been able to um, achieve such great cost benefits. But that said, EasyJet, and this was brought up to to Miss McCall on the on the press call, but she said that actually, well, very soon EasyJet is ordering a lot of larger planes, and that will have a very big impact on cost per seat. So. In a way, we're, we're actually we've still got EasyJet on a buy. It's had a tough year. It's been a tough call to stick with it. But I think actually, in the long term, those planes, those new planes, will have a big, big benefit. And I think EasyJet will sort of will come back. All right, shares are quite cheap at the moment. I say cheap. Yeah, I mean cheaper than they were a while back. Yeah, I mean, arguably, people might say, well, that's for a reason. But I mean, the the yield is is decent. It's well backed. The payout ratio went up recently as well. So even though the dividend is actually down in nominal terms, this this um, financial year just gone, the payout ratio has risen. So it's a stock that I continue to be confident in, even though the the share price chart on the results um, page doesn't look particularly pretty. No, you're not so confident on Flybe, which is the no. smaller UK rival. Yeah, also I mean, setting up a European base. They are also setting up a European base in Dusseldorf, from memory. Um, they, yeah, Flybe. It's a funny one. They've it, you kind of want to feel that the shares have hit uh, hit a bottom and are going to kind of either just tread water or maybe start to rise from here. But their chief executive, um, well, former chief executive, Saad Hamad, um, left at the back end of October. Um, I know the, the thing that concerns me about Flybe is that anyone who knows the stock well will know that they had a very big problem with overcapacity a few years ago. Mr. Hamas came in and he did affect a lot of change, a lot of positive things to control that. But now we're seeing more capacity growth. And I just think that, you know, I just feel like they've just sorted out the fact they had overcapacity. They've got to a point where things are kind of looking okay. And now they're expanding capacity again. And it just strikes me that a point in the cycle whereby capacity in European short haul, which is effectively what they're largely based in, is quite strong. I I don't know. I'm I'm not I'm not confident about that. It sounds a very reasonable position to take, Bradley. Um, you've been very busy this week. You've got loads in the magazine. Let's give you a mm. breather before we come back to uh, one of the dozens you seem to have written <laughs> this week. Um, Ian, is there anything you cast your eye over this week that you thought was particularly interesting? Yeah, a couple of trends. So, Auto Trader and Halford are interesting um, vis-a-vis Brexit. Um, in that auto trader, people were concerned about consumer sentiment after Brexit. There's also concerns that that any downturn in consumer sentiment could 
kind of decelerate or further decelerate um, new car sales. Now, they've had quite a good set of uh, half-year results running counter to that. Whereas if you take Halfords, what's quite interesting is that the uh, devaluation of sterling has caused serious cost inflation, which has cut into their margins and that weighed on their profits in their half-year results. So it's the kind of mechanistic currency element of the Brexit fallout um, compared to what we haven't seen, which is the, as expected, which was a downturn in consumer sentiment. And we saw some retail figures today that further kind of supported that uh, we, latter point. Are we fully? I mean, retail retail sales, as far as I I understand it. I've hit a record level this year. They're absolutely flying. For the economy, yeah. There was data out from the ONS today, which is very positive on the general broad sector. They're, the way they actually compile their figures and what they include is is not always um, completely easy to understand with the ONS is concerned. But yes, you're right. There's a positive trend in retail sales. So if a retailer is not doing positively, then one can probably draw a, a stronger... And car sales have been very strong across used and new, but I think it's the rate of growth in new car sales which is slowing, which is making people think that um, we might be kind of at the top of the cycle. Yeah. I mean, are we, are we completely buying the currency story at Halfords? Because this is the half year's 30th of September. Referendum was end of June. Um, sterling didn't fall off a cliff until then. You know, you've got three months of uh, of trading at old sterling, as it were. Yeah, and there are other factors at play Um you're completely right. There was um, a summer sale that was particularly aggressive um, that Harriet Russell, our writer, has, has covered, um, which definitely impacted on on profits as well. I think. I think the point I'm making is is that I think we'll see is Sterling going to become the new weather. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's a little bit more. Uh, you, it's a bit more mechanistic, isn't it, than just saying oh the old weather excuse? Because you can actually evidence the fact that yeah, the sterling price of certain goods that used to make other goods is higher. I mean, that is yeah, but you, it, that's real world. But stuff. if you're yeah, yeah, okay. So there'll be some some inflation at your end essentially. But you know, you are a big customer, say, of whoever's making your goods, and there's a discussion, and the full impact is never going to be passed through. Someone at the end of the supply chain is going to have to bear some of the cost. That, that is why we saw in terms of the inflation figures. There is definitely a lag effect, and in terms of the transmission of that inflation into the goods that we buy, like you say, there's many players uh, and there's many links in that chain, um, and retailers can use their market share or their past business relationship with a supplier to put pressure on and we definitely have seen that and we've discussed that before when it comes to some of the uh, food goods and uh, grocers yeah some of uk uh, inflation uh, which you cover in chart of the week this week i mean it was 0.9 percent in october um that was below the 1.1 percent that was expected and even that seems low considering some of the you know the the the, the concerns that have been raised about this huge spike in inflation we're likely to have as a result of the the devaluation of sterling against the dollar. Yes, but we come into this uh, room each week and quite often we're talking about competitive pressures, whether that's grocers trying to keep prices down. There's a lot of pressure on companies not to raise prices. So in terms of passing that on, some of them are preferring to take pain on profitability in the short term and actually there's a couple of results that are interesting in that respect um dairy crest which is one of um, bradley's companies their, their premium brand is cathedral city cheese uh, that they've just rebranded uh, and relaunched and they didn't want to discount that too aggressively they, so they always s- discount cathedral city aggressively well that's what was quite interesting about this <laughs> yeah, not, not as, not as <laughs> aggressively the- so this time that's right. the thing well they say it's got quite a strong market position and 
Yeah, I can see from your Mate, face you don't. Come on. You don't see this as premium, but you know, premiums in the eye of the beholder. This is, as this is one you buy when it's on special offer. Always, it's the way you buy a cathedral city or Pilgrim's Choice. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it, come on! But management said that's that was one of the reasons why their uh, the volumes dipped, particularly in that range. I think because they had done this marketing exercise, they didn't want to um, have a, you know a hit just after that. Well, yeah, it's, it's it's silly, I suppose, as well to sort of spend money on a on a rebrand and then just hugely discount it. It's like why well, why spend the money on the rebrand? Just discount the thing. Then they're not saying they didn't discount; they're just saying they didn't discount as heavily as previously. And one can believe that, or they cannot believe it. But that's what ties into this really interesting thing. Well, I think it's interesting when it comes to brand. It's like you know, investing in brand is such an intangible thing. But for retailers, obviously, it's very important. Burberry, as we saw in the in the kind of trading statement that hit the shares. Um, a couple of months ago um, and uh, we saw in their half year results that they had a drop in the under- underlying revenue in their US wholesale business and this is because they don't want uh, their customers their wholesale customers to put on a rack all their Burberry goods right uh, and to massively discount them because they see themselves as a premium brand so they actually took a hit to their revenue because they didn't want people to be selling Burberry goods for lower than um, they think a Burberry goods should be sold at so there's a couple of good examples of companies saying well we think this is seen as we don't want our premium brand to be impacted by certain mm. actions that will help us in the short term I mean, in the context of Burberry and Dairy Crest I think you're comparing chalk and cheese <laughs> Well, I, I think a premium person is, you know, with their Burberry accessory and they go... I've only been waiting about three minutes to make that <laughs> I teed that one up for you. Thank you. I guess so, to come back to your point about inflation, yes, it's, um, this month's figures were a bit lower. But uh, what I guess the point Ian's trying to make is that there's potentially pent-up inflation to come. If companies are taking some of this on the chin and they get to a point where they can't continue to do that, then the the release valve so to speak you know it may well open and then consumers might start to feel more of that inflation and dairy crest is a good point actually because milk prices milk has been terribly in a terrible deflationary cycle for a long long time not anymore prices are really coming back up so that is particularly an area where you know consumers might well see milk cheese butter other dairy um, items you know see the prices of those rise Mm, what a shame we are running out of time time for one more uh, land securities. Just to pick up on the property stuff we were talking about earlier, what we are seeing is um, obviously the London office market is definitely an area where the sentiment after the Brexit vote and worries about what might happen once we know the government's negotiating position in terms of the level of access to the single market um, and the impact that that might have on especially companies in London is impacting on land securities. And we saw, I saw it with British land, as I was saying earlier, in terms of the revaluation of the properties, and they've said they had negative revaluation passed through the income statement. Um, it's also leading to a lot of de-risking talk from the uh, management teams. They are very much now defending the more speculative of their developments, and so, and all talking, stressing uh, the areas where uh, they don't have exposure to the city. So at the moment, having um, yeah. Having office property in Canary Wharf and in the city is not exactly where you want to be. Mm, I guess it just uh, reminds us that property, um, commercial property, is a very cyclical business. Exactly right. And one of the things I was talking about with our writer Jonas earlier was how much of this was the cycle that we already knew about going into the Brexit vote, and we had talked about it. We, we have talked about, about it. We exactly. have exactly. So to an extent, that kind of downturn in sentiment. Um, 
Yeah, and that fall away in yield compression is something that we'd seen uh, happening anyway, but it does seem to be some uncertainty, which I think is a very reasonable um, uncertainty around what the impact might be on uh, rents once we find out what's going to be happening next year. Okay, and uh, Brandy, one more from you, which I, I'm always keen to uh, to uh, hear more about. Devro, such a skin maker, because that was always one of my favourites. It's having a tough time. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's... Um it's one that's favoured by us as well, but they, they put out a, an update earlier this week and it was not very positive at all. They've basically been very busy in the past couple of years um, spending money on expanding their um, factory space well, in China. Well, can never have too many sausages. Well, it can't. Um, well, they make the sausage skins. You can't make a sausage without a skin. You can't. Anyway, they've been expanding their footprint in China and the US. And um, basically now it seems that even though those sites are fully operational, on the current sales trends, the group doesn't think it'll actually need the extra space right away, which it was kind of presuming that it might do. So, I, I thought there was always a big China expansion story here. Emerging markets were increasing their the proportion of protein in their diet. Sausages were part of that. This is why they were expanding around the world all very true and that that story probably still remains in the long term it's not just china that um devro sells to it's other emerging markets as well but things like brazil i think is a relatively decent market for them and obviously with the economic situation there um there's likely to be some pressure from there so i mean they, they, they didn't break it out into why there's a bit of sales pressure but basically the bottom line of it all is that there's gonna be impact on margins and underlying operating profit for the 2017 financial year will be lower than expected and so that did send the shares down a, a hefty, I think it was twenty percent on the day. Interesting. Well, it kind of suggests that you know that emerging markets exposure that that you know many investors were looking for in the companies they invested in perhaps isn't as attractive as it, as it once used to be. Uh, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's more of a risk than anything. Perhaps it's now. a big question, and may, maybe it's just sort of um, you know it's. Yeah, I think, I think people just have to remember that it's not a sort of panacea to the potential woes of sort of saturated developed markets. Yes, absolutely. And that is an excellent note to end on. So thank you, Bradley, and thank you, Ian. There's tons in this week's magazine, actually, flicking through it and uh, trying to pull it together in a 45-minute podcast. Lots in the results section, as we've already discussed, probably about 20, 20, 25 results there, uh, along with the, uh, the tip updates. Um, we've already talked about the sector focus, but algae's... Uh, Stock screen this week discusses uh, his genuine growth picks, which is uh, uh, always a good performing screen. Lots of the personal finance and funds section, as usual, um, which they will talk about uh, this week on their podcast. And uh, the usual comment, uh, the usual new- more news than we've uh, we've discussed on this podcast. And of course, the private investor uh, diary is back this week. John Rosier having a look at how he got on in October. Worth a read to see how a real life investor is actually making sense of these crazy markets, uh, which which actually, you know, post-Trump have done pretty much nothing that anyone expected. (laughs) So anyway, thank you. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Pick up the magazine in all good news agents this week. Trumper tantrum. Can emerging markets overcome a new wall of worry? Or get online and subscribe. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 